I talk to you this morning a little bit more about money, and we're going to have one more session on this next week. There's a little two-part series that I want to talk to you about. As we talk this week and next week, I'm going to run the risk of being misunderstood, and so I want to state as clearly as I can up front, and I'm going to try to remember to state it when we close, what my purpose is. So it's important that you listen along, try to follow what I think is the logic and the pattern and the plan in the scriptures about giving, and we'll reason together over these things. I want to, it's my purpose this morning and next week, to de-emphasize, to de-emphasize tithing as a legal requirement. And to re-emphasize tithing or giving is not so much a legal requirement, but as a free will kind of thing from a gracious, loving, responsive heart. You hear me? I'm not saying throw out tithing and giving and all those things. I'm saying let's de-emphasize them as a legalistic kind of requirement and re-emphasize them as something from the heart. Too many times and in too many ways we slip back into our old legalistic modes and habits. We slip back into a pattern of performing in order to earn God's approval, and we have to constantly remind ourselves, wait a minute, I already have God's approval. And in response to His grace to me, I want to give Him my life. Does that make sense? So rather than being legalists, Let's be people who live in the reign of grace and every aspect of our life demonstrates that we live in grace and our response is a response of thanksgiving, praise, worship, love, faithfulness, all those things that go to or that match up with or respond to the gracious love and uh, compassion that he has shown towards us. And giving is one of those major areas. We've already talked about how critical of an area it is in our life every day, isn't it? I mean, giving, we said, is tantamount to life itself. Money is, rather. And uh, we need to be good stewards. And our attitude certainly uh, should be, we want it to be, uh, as accurately correct as possible. Right? So now as we look through the Scriptures, now we're going to look at, <clears throat> at three, three periods of history in the Bible. And we'll see, let's see if there's a pattern develop, a pattern of giving, a kind of giving that could be reflective of God's design and His plan. The first period we're going to look at this morning, we'll look at the first two periods this morning, then we'll look at the third period next week. The first period is from the beginning up to the time of Moses. The whole time prior to the giving of the law with Moses. We're going to look at giving in that period and see if we can discern some kind of pattern, some kind of design, some kind of consistency. And then we're going to look at the second period. The second period will be between Moses and Jesus, and that's basically the time of the law with Israel. And we'll look and see, is there a pattern there, and does the pattern in the second period match the pattern in the first? Are there some similarities? Is there some consistency? 
And then next week we'll look at the third period, and the third period is the time from Jesus on, and we'll see if, if indeed there's a pattern there, and does the pattern match in any way the pattern in the first two periods. Does that make sense to you? That's where we're going. Now as we look at these three major areas of giving, or, or the history of giving, is reflected in the Scriptures, we're going to find two <clears throat> categories of giving. Required giving and voluntary or free will giving. Those are the two categories. And you'll see that they're in all three periods. Now, I'm rethinking a lot of things that I've thought for a long time about giving. A lot of the things I've been taught and I believe for a long while as a result of these several weeks of studying about giving, uh, I'm beginning to discover things that that are just a little bit different than what I believed they were. So I'm in a process of rethinking, and I'm involving you in my rethinking process. And so it's important for you to think along with me and to look at these passages along with me and to say, hey, yeah, I do see a trend. I do see something there. And the things that, that we come out with, we end up with by the end of next, next weekend, ought to match what's true of people who are living in a reign of grace. Paul says we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. I mean, he says it categorically, and I'll, if there's anything that I can convey to you with my whole life and being, I want you to understand and to know and experience what it means to live in God's grace. His mighty, overpowering, all-encompassing, Wonderful grace. And this includes the area of giving. Okay? So we'll look at three areas. Let's look at the first area this morning. That's from the beginning up to the time of Moses. <clears throat> and we're going to look at the two categories of, of giving, free will and required or mandatory giving. Now the first passage I want us to look at is in Genesis. So you want to turn to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to go right back to the beginning and see how giving was characterized in the beginning, how it developed, what people did. In Genesis chapter 4, we meet Cain and Abel. They are Adam and Eve's first two offspring. You know the account of how Cain kills Abel and so forth. But in verse 4, we're told something very interesting. This is the very first offering to God recorded in the Scriptures. This is the very first offering in the Scriptures that we have recorded, offering to God. In verse 4, we're told that Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. I'm sorry, verse 3. <clears throat> in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Now here, listen to this. I want you to notice the phrase in verse 3, in the course of time. Nowhere in the first three chapters, and in the next couple of verses of chapter 4, nowhere do we find a command by God for them to bring this offering. Nowhere does God lay down a law. Nowhere does he say, I want you to bring me an offering of the grain or of the flocks. It's not there. But the author says, in the course of time. 
As time passed by, it dawned on them, hey, I'm going to take an offering to the Lord. Now, has it ever occurred to you in a relationship with someone who's special to you, in the course of time, that you'd like to give them a gift? I mean, just spontaneously. There's someone special in your life. You say, you know, I'm going to get, I'm going to get my wife a gift. Guys, have you ever thought that? No, John, you never thought that? John said, no, I never thought that. Rosemary, have you ever thought that in the course of time that you just kind of like to get John a gift? Yes, you've got him a lot of gifts, huh? Twigs and branches and nuts. and He just eats all that health food. That's an inside joke. He eats branches and twigs and leaves and bark and stuff like that. But you see that? In the course of time, Cain and Abel decided to bring an offering to the Lord. It's a free will offering. Nowhere is it required. Nowhere does God say, do this. Let's look at the next one. Turn over to um, Genesis chapter 8. That was a completely voluntary offering in the course of time. Genesis chapter 8. It's the account of Noah. Noah has been in the ark for a year. The water subsides. The Lord says, come out of the ark, bring all the animals with you. When Noah comes out of the ark, what's the very first thing he does? Huh? Well, let's read it. Verse 20 of chapter 8. Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and the clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. He brought an offering to the Lord. Again, it's a free will offering. Nowhere do we have in the account that God commands Noah, either during the time he was building the ark, or when he came and first spoke to him about the ark, or when he was in the ark. Nowhere do we have an account where God says, all right, now listen, Noah. When I bring the ark safely through this flood, and it lands on the mountains of Ararat, and I tell you to come out, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to come out and offer me a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. Not there. I mean, if you were in the ark and it finally landed, would you be thankful? God brought you through the flood? He brought you through a tumultuous time? Would you come and out of the willingness of your heart say, God, thank you, and bring him a sacrifice, offer him something, give something? Now, does he need to do that? I mean, does God need for us to offer him stuff? He's totally self-sufficient. No. We need to do it, don't we? Isn't it wonderful in our, in our relationships with one another how we spontaneously, willingly give from our heart? And doesn't that really mean something to the person who the gift is given to? Yes. If I require my wife to give me gifts and to bow down and pay homage to me every time I walk in the door of my house, it doesn't really mean anything to me, but if she gives me gifts and bows down and pays homage to me on her own... I'm going to get it when I get home. (laughs) If she does it on her own, then it means something, right? From a willing heart. I'm just joking. (laughs) Again, this is a free will offering. God has not commanded it. I think that's instructive. Let's go a little further. Turn over to uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. 
And then, of course, chapter 13, verse 8. And here we see Abram. God has just made Abram a great promise. But along with the promise, there's no stipulation that he is to make an offering, that he's to bring any kind of gift, that he's to give anything of his substance. God's not requiring it of Abram. But in chapter 12, verse 7, and again in chapter 13, verse 18, we find that Abraham, just out of, the, out of his own heart, the willingness of his heart, he responds to God's great promise and care for him. And he builds an altar in both places. And an altar, of course, is for offering gifts, offering sacrifices on. Now look at Genesis chapter 14. You see a pattern developing here in, the, in giving right from the beginning? The giving comes how? It comes out of a heart willingly, spontaneously, in response to God's grace demonstrated. Do you see that? Now look at uh, chapter uh, <clears throat> 14 of Genesis. It's Abram again. And here, uh, you remember the account, uh, Abram is separated from his nephew Lot. Lot has taken the nice territory down by Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abram's up in the hill country with his flocks. And Lot gets in trouble. Some marauding kings come down, and they overrun the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. They carry Lot and his family and all of his goods off into captivity. Word comes to Abram, and Abram rushes off to uh, Lot's aid to uh, save him. And Abram defeats the five marauding kings and uh, rescues Lot and takes uh, great plunder from uh, those kings. And in uh, chapter 14, we have him coming back, and he's going back to his home area, and he's passing by Jerusalem, or Salem, that's the old name for Jerusalem, and he meets Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is the king of Salem, but he's also a high priest of God. In verse uh, 18, it says, Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abram, <clears throat> saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Now here's what I want you to see next. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. That's the very first mention of the word tithe, or the word in the Hebrew is ma'asar, the very first mention of this word tithe or a tenth in the scriptures. When we have it here, some have assumed, and myself included in the past, that automatically you have taught tithing as the standard from a legal perspective. That giving became more and more, um, what I want to say, precise in terms of amount, and that's reflected in this term tithe. I don't think that's necessarily so. If you understand tithing, the word ma'asar in the Hebrew, is, all it means is a tenth, a tenth part. It was a mathematical term. It was not a religious term. It didn't have religious connotations or overtones until, of course, it was picked up in the Mosaic Law. The basic number or the basic um, counting system was based on the number 10. If you look back into history, it's, a con it's common knowledge. Most cultures have a counting system, and the basis of that counting system is the number 10. Now, why is that? 
Well, because everybody only has 10 fingers and 10 toes. You say, one, two, three, four, five. You know, have you ever counted on your fingers? I do it all the time. I say, well, let's see that, you know. And so you have a counting system based on 10. Well, 10 represented the whole. 10 represented the total entity, fullness or completion. And to give a tenth in the ancient Near East was symbolic of giving the whole. And lots and lots of cultures uh, engaged in tithing, engaged in giving tenth portions. So this wasn't something that just becomes peculiar to Israel later on. It was a common Near Eastern practice to give a tenth, and a tenth represented the whole or the total ten parts. Now Abram, being an ancient Near Eastern man, picks up on this, and he gives a tenth. Now nowhere is he required to give it. He gives a tenth voluntarily, willingly from his heart. Isn't that interesting? It's not a legal prescription. God doesn't say, do this or die. He doesn't say it. There's nowhere, nowhere is Abram commanded to do it. But Abram gives it out of a thankful, responsive heart to God's grace and blessing upon his life. Willingly. Free will. Free will giving. Um, <clears throat> that, uh, that passage is interesting in the respect also that in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4, you might just want to make this notation. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4, we have a little bit more detail about the gift that Abram gives. The writer to the Hebrews says he gave a tenth of the plunder. Now the Greek word for plunder in that passage in Hebrews is the word akrothinion. Akrothinion, which means the top of the heap. Akro, you know the word acropolis in, the, in Greece? The acropolis, there's a building on the top of the hill. The akrothinion was the top of the heap. Abram did not give to Melchizedek a tenth of everything he had. He gave him a tenth of the top of the heap, a tenth of the very best as a free will offering, as a gift. I thought that was interesting. The, uh, the tenth of the choicest of the spoils, the, kind of the first fruits, you might say, the best part. Turn to Genesis chapter 28, verse 22. Genesis 28:22. Now here we have the second mention of the word tithe in the book of Genesis, in the Bible. Um, and again, this passage is interpreted by most as indicating uh, mandatory tithing. But I want you to see the context in which it's mentioned and how it's used. The account is of Jacob. You remember Jacob? Jacob had just ripped his brother off for the birthright. And uh, his father was suspicious. He knew he was in trouble. He went to his mother, and his mother said, you better get out of town. Go to Uncle Laban's. I often wondered if Jacob knew then what he knew later about Uncle Laban. If he'd ever gone to Uncle Laban's, he'd taken his chances with his brother and his father. But it's a good thing he didn't know, because if he didn't go to Uncle Laban's, he wouldn't have married Rachel and uh, Leah, and we wouldn't have a Messiah. 
So it's a good thing he didn't know, right? So anyway, Jacob goes off. But on his way to Uncle Laban's, he stops overnight, and he has this dream about angels ministering and going up and down this, this uh, stairwell. He wakes up in the morning. He praises God. He sets up a little pillar. He names the place Bethel. And then he says this to God. Jacob means, essentially, conniver. I mean, Jacob was a shifty one. He was uh, looking for the, the best deal all the time. He'd ripped his brother off, fooled his father, basically kind of a deceptive guy. Now I want you to see how he deals with God. He's going to make a deal with God. When I've ever taught tithing in the past, I've always referred to this passage and looked and said, see, here, there's tithing there, tenthing. It's required. But I've always tr been troubled by the passage, by the context of the passage, and by the character there. I'm looking at it with new eyes, and I want you to look at it with me. Jacob makes a vow. He makes a vow. God doesn't require him to do this. He makes a vow. Now look at the vow. He says, now listen, God. If you'll be with me, watch over me on this journey I'm taking. And if you'll give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, then you'll be my God. Oh, that's nice of you, Jacob. That's real big of you. Have you ever promised God something? Have you ever said, God, if you get me out of this one, I promise. Then you'll be my God. I'll obey you. I'll do whatever you want then. But get me out of this now. That's what he's saying. He's striking a deal with God. Careful. He says, boy, you'll be my God. And then this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be your house. Great. Good. Jacob, good guy. And of all that you give me, I'll give you a ten. Magnanimous. But you see, you're not getting the tenth unless you do all this for me. It's a vow. You could say it's uh, free will. It's out of his heart. It is. It's not required. See, so from... From the very beginning with Cain and Abel up through Jacob, what kind of giving do we have? What kind of giving is recorded? What's it, how is it characterized? Free will giving. Free will giving. People are just coming and they're saying, God, I just want to give it to you. I just want to give it to you. Now, is there any kind of mandatory or required giving in, the, in that section? Yes, there is. Very interestingly. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 41. Genesis chapter 41. Here we run into some required giving. The account is of Joseph. You remember Joseph? Carried off into captivity, sold by his brothers, goes through all kinds of trials, ends up prime minister of Egypt. Second to Pharaoh, he essentially runs the country. Pharaoh gets to go off on vacation, Joseph runs the shop. Okay? 
In this chapter, we see the beginning of required giving. In the Old Testament, required giving in this section of history. Verse 28, now, Pharaoh has had a couple of visions. And the visions, as Joseph interprets them, no one else can interpret them, only Joseph. So Pharaoh has Joseph come and interpret the visions, or the dreams. And the dreams really are reflective of seven years of abundance and seven years of famine. And Joseph gives Pharaoh direction. This is God's plan. This is what you should do. Verse 28, It is just as I said to Pharaoh, God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. And then all the abundance in Egypt will be forgotten, and the famine will ravage the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. So God has a plan for Egypt. He's revealed it to Pharaoh, and Joseph has given Pharaoh understanding of what the plan is all about. Now, let's go on. Verse 33, Now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. In other words, you need a wise administrator now, Pharaoh, to oversee the land of Egypt for these next 7 to 14 years. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land, now here it comes, to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. So we have now required giving, taxation. Egypt, you have the the introduction of income tax in Egypt, and it's given to support the national entity. Required giving. Now look with me at chapter 47 of Genesis, and you see much the same thing. Verse 24, Moses, or, uh, uh, Joseph has been ruling. He has set up an economic program for Egypt. And guess what it's based on? Taxation. And taxation is required giving. It's not voluntary. Can you relate to that? Look at verse 24. Joseph says, But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to the Pharaoh. Give 20% of your income via the crops to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths, or the other 80%, you may keep as seed for the fields. In other words, you can reinvest it as food for yourselves to provide sustenance for yourselves and your household. In other words, all your slaves and so forth and your children. So there's a 20% tax imposed on the people of Egypt by God, via Joseph, as required. The first instance of required giving and taxation. All the other instances of giving that we've looked at are what? They're free will. They're voluntary. They're the response of people's heart. Now, what about the next period? The period between Moses, or beginning with Moses, up to Jesus, or what's known as the period of the law. Do we see the same pattern? Is there voluntary giving and is there required giving? Does it follow the same pattern? Let's look and see. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 27. Leviticus chapter 27. Leviticus is the book of the law to Israel. 
In chapter 27, verse 30, we see God commanding Israel something. Remember, this isn't the Mosaic law. This is required giving. He says, a tithe or a tenth of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. So this belongs to God. I mean, it all belongs to God, right? But this one-tenth especially. Now, if a man redeems any of his tithe, he must add a fifth of the value to it. In other words, if you wanted to keep some of the grain, if you wanted to keep the grain and the fruit of the harvest and not turn it in as a tithe, then what you would do is you would pay the equivalent amount in money, plus you added a 20% surcharge. I mean, that's kind of the penalty for not paying your tithe in the grain and the fruit as God had prescribed. Then there's a second part to it. There's also uh, the flocks. He says, Then the entire tithe of the herd and the flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod, will be holy to the Lord. Now the shepherd must not pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution. Because people are want to, give, to make substitutions, aren't they? They say, oh, that's a good one. Maybe I'll keep that one and I'll give this other one to the Lord. Now if you make room for any kind of substitution, chances are the substitutions we make are bad for good, not good for bad. God knows that, that he knows men's hearts. And so he says, don't make any substitutions. Whatever the tenth one is under the rod, that's the one you give. All right? Then he goes on and he says, and if he does make a substitution, both the animal and its substitute become holy and cannot be redeemed. So you couldn't redeem the animal like you could the grain or the fruit. You had to give the animal, and if you tried to make a substitution, both of them went to God. Required giving. A tithe, a tenth of the work of the produce from the people. Now turn over with me to um, Numbers chapter 18, verse 21. We're going to see a little something new or more about the tithe. So right now we have a, a general requirement by God on Israel to give a tithe of all of the work and all the produce of their, of their, of their work. Now in Numbers chapter 18 we learn something more about the tithe. Verse 21. The tithe is to go to the Levites. Now the Levites are the priestly tribe who have no land, who have no inheritance, who have no visible means of support, as do the other tribes. They are essentially responsible for the running of the government. They're the head of the government. And so God is saying that the tithe that all the Israelites bring, they are to bring and give it to the Levites. Read this with me. Verse 21. God says, I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. Verse 24 down below, he says, I give to the Levites as their inheritance the tithes that the Israelites present as an offering to the Lord. So the tithes talked about in 2730 in Leviticus, in Numbers, say, God's saying, all right, now those tithes go to the Levites. So now we, we have the support, in a very real sense, of the national leadership of Israel. Okay? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 6 through 12, 6 through 17. Now God's telling them where to take the tithe. When they come into the land, 
when the temple is going to be built, or the sanctuary, I should say, is going to be built in Jerusalem, they are to bring the tithe to the sanctuary. So we have increasing knowledge about this tithe. Now some authors, as I've been reading, there's some authors who say, who believe, that there are multiple tithes to be given. I've heard it taught that there's upwards of 25% Israel paid in tithe, and as I've reviewed these passages, it become, it's become very clear to me that it's the same 10% he's talking about all the way through. There's not multiple tithes. Israel didn't pay more than 10%. Now, when they gave, they gave at different periods of the year. Because this passage in Deuteronomy talks about them giving in conjunction with the festivals. And all of Israel's festivals were uh, around the times of harvest. They all, were all in conjunction with the times of harvest. So you have the barley coming to harvest at one period, the wheat coming at another time, the fruit being harvested at a different time, the animals are always giving birth at different times of the year, and they're all in conjunction with the various feasts, and the Jews were to go up to Jerusalem, and they were to bring the tithe to the Levites in Jerusalem, and now Deuteronomy tells us something more about the tithe. They're to take a portion of the tithe, and they're to have a national feast, and they're all to eat together. So you've got the tithe going to support the national leadership in terms of the Levites. You have the next portion of that tithe going to support the national feasts, the religious life of Israel. They're not to eat at any place else except up in Jerusalem. Now I want you to look at one more passage with me, and that is Deuteronomy chapter 14. Just turn the page a little bit. Verse 28. Here is a third use of the tithe. Now, the reason we're looking at this is because I want you to see, as I understand it, what required giving is for, as opposed to free will giving. In chapter 14, verse 28, we see that that same tithe, it's not a different tithe, it's the same tithe, but every third year, they're not to take it to Jerusalem, they're not to eat it themselves, they're not to celebrate the feasts, the religious life in Israel. What they're to do is every third year they're to give the entire tithe to the Levites, to the sojourners or the foreigners in the land, to the widows, and to the orphans, to the poor. So you've got the tithe every third year now going to support the national welfare system. You see that? Required giving falls into these three categories. You have the people giving... To support, in fact, that the the the, uh, the government in terms of these three areas: the the leadership through the Levites, the national religious festivals, in other words, the whole religious life of the nation, which provided unity amongst the people. They all went to Jerusalem and they all ate together. And thirdly, it provided for the welfare program in the nation. All the required giving went to those ends. None of these things are free will offerings. God requires them. There's a fourth kind of a requirement, and you find that in um, Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10. That's the profit-sharing program. There was a profit-sharing program in Israel, and God commands the Israelites. He says, don't glean to the edges of your fields. In other words, don't harvest everything to the edge of the fields, and don't go back over the fields a second time and pick up what you dropped. 
leave that for the poor. Leave that for those who don't have very much. So there was profit sharing, and that was commanded by God. If it was left up to the Israelites, they would go to the edges of the fields, and they would go over two or three times and pick up everything they dropped and things they missed. But God commands them not to do it. And he says in that passage at the end of verse 10, he says, I am the Lord your God. It's tantamount to meaning, and I mean it too. So you see required giving. Now what's required giving fall under? What category? Taxation. Taxation for the support of the national entity. Did we see that in the first period? Wasn't there required giving? Required giving to support what? The national entity of Egypt. Voluntary giving went to God. Voluntary giving was out of their hearts. In this same period under the law, let's look at voluntary giving as opposed to the required giving. Free will or, or, or voluntary giving is independent of taxation. Deuteronomy 12 speaks of it. Don't turn there, but when God talks about going and bringing the tithe to Jerusalem, he says also bring your vows, the things you vowed, bring your special gifts, and bring your free will offerings to Jerusalem. These are things over and above what was required in terms of a tithe. Turn to Exodus chapter 25. Here's a classic example of free will giving. Exodus chapter 25, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from each man, now look at this next phrase, whose heart prompts him to give. God's not coercing an offering. You say, Moses, we're going to take an offering, but only take the offering from those whose hearts prompt them to give. What's God looking for? He's looking for someone's heart, isn't he? He's looking for people's hearts. Where are people's hearts? He says, I don't want to coerce this. I don't want to twist anybody's arms. We've already got required giving. The required giving was to support the national entity and all the programs of the government. He says, now I want you to take an offering, but only from those whose hearts prompt them to give. Turn over to chapter 35. The offering that he takes, it takes 10 chapters to get it. <coughs> chapter 35, verse 5. He says, from what you have, take an offering for the Lord. This is Moses to the people. Take an offering for the Lord. Now everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of, and he lists a whole bunch of things. Everyone who is willing. Free will offering. Look at uh, verse 21. He says, And everyone who was willing and whose heart moved him came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its services, for the sacred garments. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought all kinds of goods. You see the willing heart? Hearts that were moved towards God? Turn over to the next page, chapter 36. Now the people were bringing the offerings, all those whose hearts had been moved, who desired to participate in this offering. The people were bringing the stuff. The workmen who were doing the work stopped doing the work. They, they left their work. Verse 5, they come to Moses 
And they say, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order, and they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more. Can you imagine? Restrained from bringing free will offerings? That's nice, isn't it? Now notice the free will offering wasn't coerced. It wasn't commanded that everybody must do it. But people believed in who God was, and they responded with their hearts. They believed in what God was doing. And when people believe in what God's doing, you can't stop them from participating, right? When they catch the vision for the kingdom of God, they give themselves and they give everything they have for that sake. Is that true? Do you believe that? Some people do. That's right. Look at this. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because what they had, what they already had, was more than enough to do all. Stop bringing your free will offerings. We've got more than enough. No, I'm not going to stop. I mean, when you're consumed with the kingdom, you find a place to take those offerings, don't you? You find a place. What's the point? The point is, where's the heart in giving? Too many times, as I said earlier on, I think we degenerate into giving from a legalistic requirement, from a mentality that God requires me to do this, so I better do it. And if I don't do it, I'm not going to get blessed. I really believe that. I really believe a lot of us slip into that old mentality. Rather than understanding that giving to God, it's His great desire that we give out of willing hearts. Does that make sense? You suppose that would be God's overarching purpose and desire for his people? Or does God march down the aisle and say, all right, did you write your tithe check today? John, did you write your tithe? Are we living under the law or are we living under grace? Grace. If we're under law, God would say, all right, did you write that tithe check today? We're under grace. God's looking for our hearts. He's given us new hearts, hasn't he? He's given us new hearts that are oriented towards Him. He's given us His life in us, hasn't He? Isn't that what the Bible teaches us? So we should have hearts like His, right? Hearts for His work. So we shouldn't have to be coerced to give. We shouldn't have to be beat over the head. If we find a need, if we see a need, if, we, if we're participating in the life of a fellowship, we should just, what? Give! Well, how much should I give? Whatever's in your heart. Rick Thompson, my administrator, is going, oh, no, there goes the budget. <laughs> no, I don't believe that. I believe that when people really believe in what God's doing, am I your way? I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to talk around me there. <laughs> no, when people believe in what God's doing, you can't stop them from giving. You can't stop them from giving. Isn't that true? Yes, it is. Listen to what uh, Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 3. This is wisdom. It's not a command. Proverbs is wisdom literature. Listen to what he says. Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. It's wisdom to honor the Lord with your wealth. 
What's it mean to honor the Lord? Well, it means, first of all, I think to be a good steward over it, to take care of it, and to use it wisely, not to waste it. It's wisdom to honor the Lord from your wealth. And secondarily, to give him some of it. To say, Lord, I want to honor you. In Malachi chapter 1, God really is ticked at Israel. And why is he ticked? Because the offerings they're bringing are not the best. They're not honoring God. And he says it. He says, you don't honor my name. Because you're bringing me the worst of the offering and keeping the best for yourself. What does that say when you bring somebody an offering? It's really kind of a measly offering. What does it say how you think about that person? You don't think very much of them, do you? People give cheapo gifts. They say, well, it really doesn't matter. It's just the thought that counts. Well, what's the thought? (laughs) Right? You heard it say that? You say, well, I'm just giving something. It's just just the thought that counts. What's the thought? The thought is, I don't think very much of you. So I'm going to give you a cheap old gift. I'm going to give you the minimum. God is incensed at Israel in chapter 1 of Malachi about giving cheap old minimum gifts and keeping the best for themselves. He says, boy, you sure don't honor me. You don't think much of my name. But Solomon says it's wisdom to honor God from your wealth. Now remember, wealth is a technical term in the Bible. It means something as opposed to nothing. It doesn't mean wealth in the terms that you and I would attach connotation to it. Honor the Lord from your wealth and with the first fruits of all your crops. In other words, give him the best. Don't be stingy. He says, then if you, if you really honor God, well, he says, your barns will be filled overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. In other words, God's going to take care of you. He'll prosper you. That's wisdom literature. Giving ought to be voluntary. And wherever there's required giving, as we've seen in these two major periods of history, the required giving goes to support the national entity. But the voluntary giving goes to God out of willing hearts. And next week we're going to look at the next period, the third period, the period from, from Jesus on, and we'll look and see if these same two trends are there and what the New Testament has to say about God's plan of giving. Voluntary, required. We'll look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning with praise on our lips and thanksgiving in our hearts. Lord, as we study your word and ascertain what your purposes are, what your plan is, what your design is, give us great wisdom. Guide us into the truth. Stir our hearts that we might respond to you in every way with all faithfulness that we might demonstrate how much we do love you and how much we do value through our substance, through our giving. Lord, help us to to know how much you love us. As many have testified this morning, as many have shared your grace in their life and how you've touched them and ministered to them. We thank you for that, Father. We bless your name this morning. 
We pray this morning that as you receive our offering, that they would be free will offerings given from our heart. We pray, Father, that we would truly, truly demonstrate that you have our hearts. That we come before you, worshiping you with our substance. Unashamed. No legalistic motivation. Purely because you love us and you've showered us with your grace. We thank you, Father, again for sending Jesus, for dying for us, for giving us new life, and giving us your life. We pray these things now in Jesus' name and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? All right.